Well, if you brought your Bible this morning, uh, you can go ahead and open with me up to Philippians chapter 1. I was looking around in the Bible this week for uh, a passage on perseverance, Uh, something to do with endurance and steadfastness, because I think this week in particular was pretty tough for a lot of us, uh, especially hearing about the spike with the coronavirus, uh, numbers going back up, positive tests going back up, uh, death rates in some cases going back up, and then uh, governor orders in our state and many other states to begin to shut down businesses that had reopened. Uh, calling for places of worship to cease their indoor activities. This was discouraging news for many of us. Uh, my, my daughters, they uh, were both involved in a local dance studio, and recently that studio had to permanently close their doors because they just could not make ends meet in light of the pandemic and the constant changes um, from the government to keep everybody safe. And it was heartbreaking for our family. And my son, he's involved in Taekwondo. They'd started doing live uh, practices again for a couple of weeks, and then they had to shut their doors again and go back to online Zoom. So this affects every corner of our society and every part of the world. And um, certainly we're not happy with what we have to do, but I felt that we as believers really need to just pause and to be reminded of the call to persevere, to endure through hardship and suffering. Sometimes that hardship takes the form of persecution. Sometimes that hardship just simply takes the form of living in a sin-cursed world uh, where sickness happens, disease happens, disaster happens, where hardships occur in our lives personally, in our families, in our church, and in our community. And so I really wanted to just meditate with you for a few minutes about the call to persevere and hopefully make our songs this morning and our time in Scripture this morning a time of encouragement. As I was looking around, I came across this passage in Philippians 1. And I'd really like this to be a kind of theme verse for our church family for the remaining weeks, months, however long this drags on, the call to persevere never goes away. And so I hope that this morning we'll come to understand this passage a little bit better and that we'll hide it in our hearts. We are told to hide God's word in our hearts that we will not sin against him. There are times we have been tempted to sin, to sin in sins of complaint, griping, murmuring, complaining. Um, And the sins are going to continue to plague us because we are sinful creatures and we fight the flesh every day. And this passage can help us to not grow weary in doing well, to not lose heart, but rather to persevere. Philippians chapter 1, I'd like to go ahead and read the final verses of the chapter beginning in verse 27. Paul says to the Philippian church, keep in mind he's writing this from prison, expecting that he is going to be released soon, and it's his hope to see the church But whether he sees them or whether he's away, whether he lives or whether he dies and goes home to be with Christ in heaven, he has one thing he asks of the church. And this is what we see in verse 27. Only this, he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This, he says, is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. 
one of the things that immediately grabs my attention is how Paul expresses uncertainty in this passage. He says there in verse 27, whether I come and see you or am absent. This is the Apostle Paul. This is the divine emissary of Jesus Christ who is called on the road to Damascus, who is saved and forgiven from his sins, from a life of what he described as blasphemy as he sought to keep the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, dot every I, cross every T, try and maintain the law perfectly. He knew he fell short of God's perfect standard, and yet God saved him from his sin, called him to be an apostle. This man had seen Christ personally. He walked closer with God than anybody that I probably will ever meet, the side of heaven. And yet he doesn't know whether he's going to see the Philippians in person or not. Even his life was still involved with uncertainty. There were things he just simply didn't know because God hadn't revealed them to him. And life has been full of uncertainty for us the last several months. One of the other things that I think is especially discouraging for many folks right now is we're just starting to get word of what the fall school year is going to look like. And that just adds a whole nother layer of complexity and uncertainty. Are kids going to be in school? Are they going to be at home? Are they going to be in regular classes? Are they going to be in small groups? Are they going to wear masks? Are they going to be inside? Are they going to be outside? There's all kinds of uncertainties. And it's hard to accept that we don't know what the future holds. Because we are creatures of habits. Change is hard. We like to be able to plan our day out. We like to know what tomorrow is going to hold. And yet, if there's something good from all of this, certainly it has brought home the reality of James chapter 4 that we are not to boast about tomorrow, but rather we are to say our plans are to do this or to do that, to go here or to do there, if what? The Lord wills. If the Lord wills, we will go and do this and experience this business transaction and this economic uh, decision. If the Lord wills, we will go here and there and do this and that. No matter Paul's itinerary, he wants to hear that the church is doing one thing, and that is standing firm. And the same for us, Crossview. God wants us to stand firm. And these verses particularly resonate with me because for some of you, this is the first time I've seen you in months, right now. And it's such a blessing to see your face again. And I hope I'll see it again next week and the week after that. But there's a sense of, I feel like the Apostle Paul, whether we are absent or whether we are together, I want to keep hearing that you're standing firm. I hope that we'll be together. You know, oftentimes Paul and also the Apostle John, when they would write letters those letters were a gift to those churches and they're a gift to us, but they would rather have been face-to-face -face with their people. And sometimes they didn't have that luxury. There were times that they couldn't be face-to-face -face in ministry. And so they resorted to the preaching and the teaching and the writing of the word of God. And certainly we're grateful that those things were recorded for us and that we can continue to hear those dialogues that if Paul had just talked with the Philippians in person every single time, nothing may have been written down. So we're thankful for these letters, and in God's providence, it's been recorded for us in Scripture. But there were times he didn't know if he would see them, and I don't know if I'll see you. But whether I see you or whether we're apart, I want to keep hearing that you're standing firm. Stand firm. Here he says that's what he wants to hear is the report. Later in chapter 4, he will turn this into a command. Listen to this. 
Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm. Don't slouch, he says. Don't waver. But stand firmly fixed like a tree that is firmly planted with roots deep. Like a soldier that is going to brace himself and not surrender one inch to the enemy. Stand firm, Paul says. Reminded of what David says over in Psalm 16. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. I shall not be shaken. This is what Paul wishes for the Philippian church as well. As I mentioned a few moments ago, uh, my son Dylan, he's been taking Taekwondo. One of the first things that a white belt Taekwondo student learns is fighting stance. And I won't exactly try and replicate it for you, but picture somebody who is spreading their legs a little bit apart. Their arms are up in defensive position. They are ready to engage in combat. Their center of balance is in such a way that they're not easily going to wobble. They're not going to get knocked over or caught by surprise. The fighting stance is one that you have good, solid balance and posture, and you're ready to engage the enemy. That's what Paul's talking about. He wants to hear that the church is standing firm, not easily pushed or thrown off balance by winds of doctrine. He talks about that over in Ephesians of people that are blown by every wind of doctrine. He doesn't want that to happen in the Philippian church. But there's a kind of fighting stance in the Christian faith. And so I want to challenge and encourage us this morning to stand firm. And we see three qualities of standing firm that come out of our text this morning. As Paul is challenging the church to stand firm in one, in one spirit, we see three different uh, virtues or three different qualities of standing firm, of what it looks like to stand firm, for a local church to stand firm regardless of what circumstances happen around us. First of all, we're going to see integrity, then we're going to see unity, and lastly, we're going to see bravery. Integrity, unity, and bravery. Those are the three qualities that Paul talks about of what it looks like for a church to stand firm. First, standing firm involves integrity. Notice with me again, verse 27, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, be the same person on the inside as you are on the outside. We all know that there's certain people that are Sunday morning Christians, and they can put on their Sunday clothes, and they can act and talk a certain way, but talk to them Monday morning, and they act like a completely different person. Friends, your Bible is not just a book to blow the dust off once a week and grab as you go to church. How you act, how you talk, it is to be consistent. Day in, day out, week in, week out. Be the same person inside and outside. We are not only to talk the talk, but what? Walk the walk. Our walk or our conduct and behavior is to match or be worthy of or to have integrity with our talk. And Paul uses a really interesting expression at the beginning of verse 27. He says, let your manner of life be worthy. Let your manner of life be consistent. This isn't Paul's usual word for uh, walk or manner of life. Uh, that is one's conduct, one's lifestyle. Sometimes I think the King James used to translate the word one's conversation. They're going in, they're going out. That's not the normal word that Paul uses here. This is a peculiar word that appears only two times in the New Testament. 
And manner of life, to be quite frank, is probably not the best translation of this expression. The Greek word, listen to this, polituamai, from which we get the root polis or city. The Greek word polis, P-O-L-I-S, if you want to put it into English, was uh, a word for the Greek city-state. Uh, we get our English word metropolis from that. Uh, we get the word politics from that. So it has to do with citizenship. Citizenship. Paul is talking about our citizenship. Let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ. A century earlier, just about 100 years before Paul wrote to the Philippians here in this letter, Philippi had been declared a Roman colony by the emperor Octavian. And that was no small privilege for them. That was a big deal. They were declared to be a Roman colony. And what that meant is as a citizen of Philippi, you now had all the rights and privileges of being a Roman citizen. Even though you lived in Philippi, you now were treated as though you had been born in Roman soil. Of course, you know that Paul was a Roman citizen. He had been a citizen by birth. He spoke with a general one time that had bought that citizenship at great price, and it was a great privilege. Paul was born a citizen. Well, the Philippians were declared to be citizens by the fact that they lived in Philippi, and they became a faithful Roman colony. They took great pride in their citizenship. We sing proud to be an American. They sing proud to be a Philippian, okay? This was a big deal to them. They loved where they lived. They were proud of their citizenship. They thought about their home and all the rights and privileges of being a Philippian and hence, essentially, a Roman. Well, Paul reminds them that they have another citizenship. Philippians 3.20, if you look over just a couple chapters, he spells it out clear. He says, but our citizenship is in where? Heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. If you're an American citizen this morning, praise God. What a privilege. Let me just challenge you. Make sure you're registered to vote. We need to get out the vote this November. We need to participate in the democratic process. And one of a number of things that we can do to try and make a positive difference is to vote for the best candidates that are available and the policies that they stand for. Okay, you say you're pro-life. Praise God, we need to be pro-life. We need to support our local pregnancy center. We'll make sure you're also voting for people and for policies that are some more supporting the preservation of life from womb all the way to the tomb. Okay, so we have certain rights and privileges as American citizens. But let me remind you that your primary citizenship, regardless of what your driver's license says, Regardless of what your passport says, your primary citizenship is up there. It's in heaven. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe the gospel this morning? Do you believe that Christ died for your sins? That he washed your sins away and took all of the guilt and the filth and the muck, and the shame, and he wiped it whiter than snow. Do you believe that Christ has the power to do that through his death on the cross and through his resurrection? If you believe that, then the promise is 
you are a new creation. And if you haven't yet believed that the invitation is available, do it today. Don't prolong it. Don't postpone it. Don't make excuses, but search the scriptures. Grab that Bible this afternoon and read through the gospel of John that Rob read a portion for us this morning. Search the scriptures. Make an informed decision about who this Jesus is and what he did to accomplish your salvation and forgiveness of sins. But having trusted in Christ, Paul says, make sure that your conduct, your life, your citizenship, that it is consistent with the proclamation of your lips. There needs to be integrity. Sometimes on a hike in Joshua Tree, I'll be walking along and all of a sudden I'll pass a family going the opposite direction and they'll be talking to one another and sometimes they'll speak with an accent. Sometimes they'll even speak in another language and I won't know what they're saying. And I think, you know, how cool that here we live with Joshua Tree National Park in our backyard and there's people that will travel all the way across the world and come to visit it. It's a blessing to live in this beautiful place. But the fact that they are speaking in an accent or speaking in a different language is a sign that they may be a foreigner. Foreigners often speak differently. They often dress differently. They have different cultural cues and norms. Well, we as Christians are foreigners. We as Christians are foreigners. And I think probably for most of us, we have never felt more away from home and homesick than in the last few months. It's been tough. How many times I've had conversations with people and we've all said, oh, we just can't wait for Jesus to come back and take us home. Because they make no mistake, this is not our home. This world is not our home. We want to go home. You can think of the church as a colony of heavenly citizens. Because our citizenship belongs somewhere else, and yet for a while, we take up residence in a place that really isn't our true permanent home. Why are we here? Well, we're here to encourage and invite other people to find their citizenship, to apply for residency and citizenship in the home of heaven as well. You don't evangelize people by becoming as much like them as you can. You evangelize them by remaining distinct from them, right? Jesus says that we are salt and we are light. We are salt, which has flavor because we are distinct from the world. We are light because we are in a dark place and we point people to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. We are to be different than the world. And and what does it look like to walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ as heavenly citizens? Well, I can think of no better passage than Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus specifically says, this is what it looks like to be a citizen of heaven. You remember what he says? He has a number of beatitudes or blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit is speaking of someone who knows they are morally bankrupt, and so they humble themselves before a holy God. Blessed are those who mourn, that is, that we weep and we repent over our sin and find forgiveness and mercy at the hands of God alone. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the pure in heart. And then he rounds out that series of beatitudes with this. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he began that list by saying, Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he ended the list by saying, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is a heavenly citizen? 
What does it look like to be worthy of the gospel of Christ in our citizenship and in our conduct? We need to be people who are humble, who are meek, who thirst for righteousness, who make peace, who show mercy, and who are willing at times to even suffer for the name and the fame and the glory of Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is integrity, and that's what Paul wants to see in the church. That's what I want to see in our church. That's what I want to see in my own life as well. Our conduct matches our citizenship. But if this is happening, it will lead to a second quality of standing firm, and that is unity. Unity. Paul gives three expressions that capture unity there in verse 27. Look at it again with me. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. Here it is in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He doesn't say it just once. He doesn't say it just twice. He says three different times in three different ways. One spirit, one mind side by side for the faith of the gospel. You see, the church were to march together and keep step like a marching band or like a platoon of soldiers, which takes focus and it takes discipline. This last week, my wife and I celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary. And I just publicly want to express my love and gratitude for Natalie. 20 years. How did we make it that long? By the sheer grace of God and a lot of patience that she had for me. But unity, right? We had to have unity. Does that mean we agree on every single thing? Nope. No, but you know what? We love one another. We love God who loved us first. We both love the scriptures which guide our lives, our family, and our decisions. We both love you, this church, and make it a high priority in our lives. There's so much unity. I can completely understand why Paul says to the Corinthian church, do not yoke yourself unequally together with unbelievers because you try and hitch together or yoke two animals that are not moving in the same direction or similar size, then they are going to pull each other and buck against each other and they're not going to accomplish what they're supposed to. I'm so grateful for a wife that loves the Lord and has loved me and loves our kids and there's unity there. And that is a picture also of how a church needs to have unity. There's still distinctiveness, okay? There's differences. What brings us together is not that we all look the same or dress the same or talk the same. What brings us together is we have unity in Jesus Christ. And the things that are most important, we share them in common. Oh, see, look at this Christian unity right here. A nice, cool, wet paper towel. Woo, praise God. Thank you. We've got unity. We share the same things in common. Paul's actually introducing a theme here that will continue through the rest of the letter. He's going to continue to talk about unity. Particularly, we have one of the most important passages on unity in all the New Testament in the opening verses of chapter 2. You remember that passage that talks about have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself, even to the point of death, death upon a cross. Um, that passage that talks about not looking out only for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So he has a lot to say about unity. In chapter 4, he's going to actually call two ladies out by name. How would you like that? 
to ha have your name called out by the Apostle Paul to be read in front of the church and, oh, by the way, to be immortalized for the rest of human history for people to read about you, 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 Odia and Syntyche and the little arguments that you were having between each other. He has to call them out by name in chapter 4 and say, I entreat, I beg Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. You see, they'd let their guard down. They'd stopped standing firm and they were starting to allow division and gossip and slander and complaining to weave its way and tear apart the fabric of the church. And he says, I, I have to entreat these two women publicly. Yes, and I ask you also, the rest of you, to help these women who have labored side by side. See, they had done gospel work together. But it's not just enough to look back and say, oh, those were the good old days when we used to get along. <laughs> no, Paul says you've got to keep striving and fighting for unity, you've got to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Unity doesn't happen by accident. You don't stumble into unity. It takes work, effort, sacrifice. And before he gets to uh, the challenge of these two specific women whom he loved, and he was not trying to humiliate them, but he knew that they needed a word of correction and rebuke from the Lord. Before he gets to that, he reminds us in chapter 2 that unity is built upon the foundation of the cross of Jesus Christ. We can have unity as a church because Christ demonstrated unity when he humbled himself, when he put someone else's interests above his own, when he set aside his rights and his privileges and he loved other people and showed them affection. How is unity going to happen? I guarantee you'll never, you'll never just stumble into it by accident, whether in a marriage or in a church or in a community, in a society. We're not going to accidentally find unity again. It's going to take prayer. It's going to take self-sacrifice. It's going to take rebuilding a spirit of respect toward one another and not in any way compromising our convictions, but not vilifying people and caricaturing them but rather to listen to them and ask them to give us the same respect that we are showing to them. We are to love our neighbor as ourself. Just last week, we were looking at the story of Elijah, remember? And those three different captains that came to him, and the first that said, come down, Elijah, off that mountain and go see the king. And the second one that said, come down now, the king demands you to come. And the third one who took a different approach. After the first two had been incinerated, it was a pretty good idea. Let's try a different strategy here. Instead of escalating the conflict, he came humbly before Elijah and said, I recognize what you did and the power you have. Would you please spare my life and my men and come with me before the king? And God said to Elijah, okay, now it's time to go. Now they get it. You were a man of God. You deserve respect. Now you can go to the king. But it takes effort not to escalate, but rather to resolve conflict. Think how quickly church unity can unravel. It can happen from criticism. It can happen from miscommunication. It can happen from disagreement, sometimes over the pettiest little issues. It can happen over careless words, which often happen when we're tired, we're discouraged, we're distracted, we're depressed, 
And so something comes out of our mouth. We didn't have our guard up like we should have. We didn't have the bridle in. And so something was said, and you can never take those words back. And the harm and the damage has been done. James says that our tongues are like a flame of fire that spark a forest fire and can do irreversible damage. On top of all this, we've got our enemy, Satan. Satan, who is our adversary, the accuser of the brethren, the enemy of God and his church, and one of his main strategies to take down the church is to attack its unity. Be on guard, friends. Real quick, here's a key passage on unity. Mark this, James 1.19. James 1.19, if I could pick one passage and say, memorize this and recite this in your mind the next time you find yourself in an argument, okay? James 1.19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Children learn at a young age, there's a fire in the house, you do three things. You stop, you drop, and what? You roll, right? You get the fire out, and then you stay low, and you get out of the house. This is the stop, drop, and roll of conflict. It's that kind of instinctive reaction that needs to happen that the moment you engage in conflict, somebody snaps at you, oh God, by grace, help me to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Help me, Lord. Maybe I need to just bite my tongue, bite my my lip for a moment, gather my composure, not to be quick to anger, but slow. I need to listen. We need to communicate. I need to forgive. Okay, this is the stop, drop, and roll of Christian unity. Verses 20 and 21 are really good too. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. God gets angry. He gets angry at sin. A lot of times we get angry because our feelings were hurt. Because our rights were somehow, um, or our, our preferences were not kept. We get angry often for selfish reasons. Or maybe we have a slight right to be upset or disappointed, but then that wrath of man does not meet the righteousness of God. We allow that anger to begin to simmer and to fester and to corrupt that relationship. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Right after James says, stop, drop, and roll, or be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. He says, put away your filthy, rampant wickedness and receive the word of God. Grab that Bible. Open up maybe to the Psalms. Just read some scripture. Get the implanted word back in your heart and your mind and let that guide your conversation as you seek to resolve that conflict. So we've talked about integrity. We've talked about unity and how both of these are essential character qualities of standing firm but there's one more and this is a reminder that it will not always be easy the other virtue the other character quality is bravery the third quality of standing firm is bravery paul says in verse 28 he wants to hear that the church is not frightened in anything by your opponents he knows there's going to be opponents I don't know about you, but I don't like confrontation. I don't want any opponents in this world. I just want to love God, love Jesus, love people, and I want them to love me in return. And yet, what did Jesus say in John chapter 15? 
He said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you also. There will be people, sadly, who out of their hostility against God will lump us together with God and they will treat us wrongly. John 15, Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, remember, we're citizens of heaven, right? Because you are not of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And Paul says, when you experience any kind of mockery, threats, intimidation, disenfranchisement, even suffering or death, he says, don't be frightened. Stand firm. The image of being frightened in verse 28 is like a timid or a scared horse. A couple weeks ago, we had July 4th with the fireworks, and because there weren't public fireworks, you know what most people did? They went out and they bought illegal fireworks. And you've seen that video of Los Angeles and just how all the illegal fireworks are being shot off all across the city. I mean, the whole place was just ablaze with fireworks. I don't need to watch the video of Los Angeles. It looks that way in Yucca Valley some nights. And uh, even last night, here I am at my desk, you know, at 10 o'clock, wrapping up my sermon prep. Boom! More fireworks going off. Dylan says, July 4th was two weeks ago. Why are people still shooting off fireworks? I don't know. Maybe they got them on discount, on clearance. But there's more fireworks going off, and our poor dogs are freaking out. Their eyes get big. Their ears go back. They shake uncontrollably. On July 4th, it took them several hours to finally, like, settle back down. Calm down. It's okay. It's going to be okay. We put them in their beds. We put them in their cages. We covered them up with blankets, tried to just give them a sense of safety and security. But they were frightened. How often are we as Christians frightened by the bangs and the booms of circumstances and people around us and we forget no 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 god is in control god is on his throne he is going to shield and protect us and not allow anything to happen that is outside of his will don't be afraid don't be startled but we as christians especially in america have so much still to learn about suffering for the cause of christ you know what i don't want to suffer I pray that I can lead a a quiet and peaceable life and godliness. That's what we're told to do is to pray for our leaders and pray that we can mind our own business and lead a quiet life and live out our Christian witness. And whatever happens, we have to leave that in God's hands. But Paul says, I want to hear that you're not frightened. Don't be scared. In fact, he says that suffering is actually, this is shocking. He says suffering is actually a gift from the Lord. Verse 29, it has been granted to you. It's been gifted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. Well, I like that gift. I like the gift of salvation, but notice what's next. There's another gift, but also that you should suffer for his sake. Well, that gift is kind of like fruitcake at Christmas time. You know what? Thanks, but no thanks. I don't really want that gift. I don't know what to do with that gift, but he says, You're also granted or gifted the gift of suffering, which can I just encourage you with this? If you suffer, it's because God loves you and wants you to wants to make you more like Jesus. If you suffer, 
it's because he loves you. He would not give you something that he knew you could not bear without his grace and without his help. And each time that you experience suffering of any magnitude or any shape or size, think about that next time. Lord, this, this is a gift from you. I don't fully get that, but I know that you have a purpose and a plan. Help me to learn from this gift. Paul explains a little bit of what's going on here, why it's a gift, because he says in verse 28 that your resilience, your perseverance in times of suffering is a clear sign to unbelievers that they are going to be judged and destroyed. And meanwhile, that you are going to be saved. So when we endure and persevere through trial, it is a sign, it is a visible proof of the fact that God is going to preserve his people and he is going to judge the wicked. And then he says in verse 30, to be encouraged by the fact that he's going through the same kinds of things. You see, he is a leader that leads from the front. And he says, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm engaged in the same kind of suffering. He's writing from prison. He had been in prison in Philippi. You remember what he did in Philippi that night? He sang with Silas. And now he challenges the church as you suffer, whatever that looks like, as you're engaged in the same conflict, know that I had also, and you hear that I still have. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. Persevere. Stick together. Be consistent inside and outside because God has called us to endure. Regardless of the uncertainties, God wants you to endure. When I think about perseverance, I think about running a marathon. It's not something I've ever done by experience. Anybody here ever ran a full marathon before? That's impressive. What's that? Netflix, that almost counts. Did you break a sweat? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> Running a marathon, I think, is, is to me, it is the classic example of endurance. And you normally think of running as a very individualistic sport. I mean, after all, it's just you and your pair of tennis shoes, right? But in reality, even running for many people is a team sport. Uh, several years ago, we had a missionary family, John and Jessica Fahm, that we were supporting while they were down in South America ministering in Peru. And it had been Jessica's lifelong dream to run in a marathon. I mean, to me, that's just crazy. That's like a death wish, but she really wanted to run in a marathon. And after many years, she had the privilege of running in the New York City Marathon. And after that event, she recounted her experience. This is a little long, but I want to read in her own words what happened and the picture of endurance and how it involves striving together with other people that were alongside of her and cheering her on, okay? Use this as a picture of how we, as we go through trials, are called to press on and finish the race well with endurance. Jessica said, it took me many, many years to finally get to the New York City Marathon. I had to wait four or five years for my entrance because it is a lottery system. There were many setbacks and injuries and very disappointing days. I had tremendous pain in my foot until the mile 12 to 13. A kind man, a fellow runner, gave me some Tylenol around mile 4. Also, a spectator gave me a terrible tasting homemade smoothie at mile 8 or 9, and whatever it was, it killed the paint and gave me crazy energy. Once I reached the halfway mark, the pain disappeared. It was really strange how my foot just stopped hurting. It literally just stopped. I knew once I made it to that point that I could finish. Spectators gave me the following, and I ate all of them. Rice Krispie treats, gummy fish, goldfish, 
Hershey's Kisses, homemade smoothie with something in it, banana, lollipops, other assorted candies, and tissues for runny noses. The crowd acted as if I was the only person running the race. I heard thousands of cheers from my name and gave hundreds of high fives. It was insane. One guy was even giving out free hugs. Of course, I took one, twice. Other people offered signs that would, see, would say, free power-up if you touch the middle of this sign. I used 10 power-ups. My cheering squad, Wesley, Christopher, Brooke, and John, met me at mile nine and again, I think, mile 22. They were supposed to meet me at earlier mile markers, but they were delayed. When they were not at the correct mile marker, I knew I had to keep on going so I could see them. Knowing they were going to be there kept me plodding, tired, and delirious. I smiled the entire way. I smiled so much that my cheeks hurt. I made it to mile 25 and I was very dizzy. I stopped for about three minutes to hold on to the rails. A marathon worker helped me and asked what I needed. I realized I was only one mile out and I literally said out loud, suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> the next mile was filled with a gazillion high fives and cheers. The fatigue dissipated. I still have faces etched in my mind. The cheering crowd calling out my name was really cool and surreal. It pushed me to my dream. I finished, I cried, it was finally over, we did it. And then I went straight to the medical tent. <laughs> but she finished, she endured to the end. Where did we ever get the idea that the Christian life was easy? It's not a sprint, friends, it's a marathon. And Paul wanted to hear of the Philippian church, and I want to hear of you, brothers and sisters, that we are standing firm with our walk, consistent with our talk, that we stay united together, striving side by side, right? Okay, so whatever happens in the months to come, we've got to stick together and hold one another up in prayer, in encouragement, getting together, you know, being creative when necessary. How are we going to do this? But we're not going to give up and we're not going to give up the privilege of being together as a church. We'll do whatever it takes to honor the Lord and not forsake assembling together as the people of God. But this is a group effort. We need endurance and God wants us to race together. Crossview Bible Church, let us strive side by side for the sake of the gospel. I want to thank you for being here this morning. It's a joy to gather together. It is more joyful than I can put into words. It is such a blessing to be together with some of you that I haven't seen in a very, very long time. Many are still watching from home. We love you. We miss you. You might consider as uh, at least for the next few weeks, we're probably going to be meeting outside. Uh, we've got plenty of space here, right? I mean, there's plenty of space. I know we're kind of taking advantage of the shade, but people can bring easy ups. We've got misters that we just turned on at the end here. We've got ways to try and uh, moderate the heat a little bit, but we've got plenty of space to take advantage of here. Let's show ourselves and show this world that the people of God are important. We are essential because our Savior Jesus Christ is essential. And he's going to stay with us every step of the way. We're going to wrap up our service with a final prayer this morning. I want to thank you for being here. Feel free to stick around and fellowship a little bit afterwards. Maybe one of our deacons can, or ushers can get a basket or a bucket in case you guys are on the ball. Thank you. So there's a basket there by the exit. 
And if the Lord leads you and you have the ability to give to the Lord's work and support our ministry here at Crossview Church, we would be very grateful for you to support that. Uh, you can also give online. You just go to crossviewyucca.org and you can support um, through our giving tab there on our church website as well. But let's go ahead and close out our service in a word of prayer this morning. Father, thank you once again that we could meet and gather, worship you through singing, through prayer, through the study of your word. Lord, what a blessing it is to be outside and to see the body of Christ gathered once again. We know that there's still many who are not here in our midst. We pray that you would comfort them in a special way with the same spirit that is present here, that they too would sense the love of your Holy Spirit and that they would stand firm and strive together and finish strong. Lord, I pray that you would take care of the needs of our church and the families who represent it. So many are struggling through this time, many who have lost their jobs, some who have had their hours cut way back, others who have had to close their businesses, whether temporarily or permanently. Lord, so many different trials but let us not grow weary or lose heart. We have many who are facing medical setbacks. We pray for those who are sick, those who have had surgeries postponed, those who are fighting other diseases like diabetes and heart conditions and cancer. All those continue to go on along with the pandemic, Lord, and I pray for your grace for those who need other kinds of treatment and just the encouragement to press on. Lord, we want to pray this morning, especially for Sherry Brecky and her husband, Dwayne. He, for a long time, has had a surgery planned, and Lord willing, it's going to take place this Thursday. We just want to gather as a church and to lift up Dwayne to you, that you would allow this surgery on his vertebrae to go well. It's a serious procedure. It's taken a lot of preparation. It's been put off multiple times, Lord. If it be your will, let it happen this week. Give him grace Help them to manage the pain. We pray for a full recovery, and we pray your strength and patience for Sherry as she's going to be a caregiver in the days ahead as well. Lord, we have others that are hurting, and you are the God who is a very present help in time of need. You know what those pains and those struggles are. Lord, sometimes they're shared publicly. Other times they're very uh, private and secret, and yet you know. And I pray that you would comfort and strengthen each person in our church. Lord, we love this place that we live. We pray for our state. We pray for our community. We pray for the upcoming election. We pray for our current leaders and future leaders. We ask, Lord, if it be your will, let those who lead our country and our community to seek justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. Lord, help us to be a shining light and to strive together side by side for the name and the fame of Jesus Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen.